冇諗過你真係會中意我嘅。我都冇諗過，嗰陣時係想知道你點開始。everyone and welcome to yet another episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John and with me as always my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? Uh, I'm good, John. How are you? I'm good as well. Uh, so this is episode 13 and ultimately our final episode of the season, uh, season 3, which uh, was focused on Asian award winners. And uh, we are closing the season with Wong Kar Wai's In the Mood for Love. Uh, this is uh, recorded a bit later than usual because, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but I was on holiday, so, you know, I took some time off. Uh, but I think it ended up being well because it is the end of the year, and so closing the season with 13 episodes right as the year ends, I think it's a, a fitting end to uh, our format. And, of course, we'll be back with season four, uh, as we usually do sometime uh, in the next year. Uh, and, of course, we'll talk more about that. Uh, but like I said, today, our discussion will be focused on In the Mood for Love. But before we get into that, uh, Jason, it's been a while. It's been a few weeks, maybe four weeks since last we recorded. Uh, but uh, I'm sure you have uh, a a explored and consumed some uh, interesting uh, media uh, since then. So why don't you give us the highlight of what you've been doing since last time we spoke? Uh, so in terms of my cultural consumption, um, I'm reading The Bells of Old Tokyo. And um, I'm playing the video game Tactics Ogre. Um, I'm about to wrap that up, just doing some uh, final optional dungeons. And in terms of film, I've watched a huge range um, from Michael Haneke's Code Unknown to a few Koji Wakamatsu films, the short stop-motion animated film Dino, um, Seijin Suzuki's Yumeji, Wong Kar-wai's Days of Being Wild, 2046, and In the Mood for Love. And I think uh, the biggest change to my sort of viewing habits has been um, getting Netflix. And uh, I've been trying to watch at least one film or episode of a series a day to try and make most of the service. Are you doing again, uh, you know, are you going to have it for a limited amount of time or do you think you're going to keep it for good this time? Oh, this one's for good. It's part of a sort of cable package that... Uh, uh, able to uh, access netflix now i don't think it's as good as it used to be there are if i only had one service at least in the u.s i'm sure the uk is completely different if i only had access to one service uh mine would not my choice would not be netflix but uh i mean in the uk that uh, that might be a different issue i mean a different uh yeah we don't have hulu or hbo go which seem like they have really great content that's right yeah exactly 
Uh, yeah, so like uh, in terms of Netflix, it's been great to sort of revisit 90s Hollywood um, cinema, such as like the Bruce Willis action of Mercury Rising and a Harrison Ford movie, Clear and Present Danger. Uh, and also like 1970s stuff, uh, like The Sting with uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Um, I've definitely lined up Squid Game because we often talked about it and uh, I never got around to watching it last time. Um, I'm currently watching Juon Origins. Um, which is a glossy serialized take on the horror franchise. And so far it's like, I'm on episode four and it's good at creating sort of time-skipping storyline set in different decades, but I just don't find it very scary. It's, uh, in terms of like the most impressive content I've watched, um, the last two episodes of Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities really uh, impressed me. The preceding six uh, mixed bag in terms of quality. The Lovecraft adaptations didn't really work for me. Um, some of the some of the others like graveyard rats uh, had great creature feature effects rubbery suits uh, animatronics but the last two episodes uh, i highly recommend people watch those and it's an anthology series so you don't have to you don't have to watch it in order yeah just like twilight zone a tangent but i kind of wish uh more anthology series were produced it seems that every time it's attempted it it, it doesn't it doesn't seem to end well i don't know people don't seem to care about those like uh the attempt to revive the Twilight Zone with, um, uh, what's his name, Jordan it- Peele as a host. Okay, I never watched those. I mean, that was just released a couple of years ago, I think. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it's been renewed. I think they did one season, and I watched the first couple of episodes, and it was very unimpressive. Uh, and then there was uh, the uh, a few years before that, it was The Electric Dreams of Philip K. Dick, which was... Uh, an anthology series with every episode based on a short story uh, from Philip K. Dick. And I, I thought that was a little bit better. I thought there was, uh, there was a few decent episodes, but even that didn't seem to, to do very well. Yeah. Uh, so it seems to me, I don't know, I don't know how well a Guillermo del Toro series is doing, but it seems that there is, um, there just isn't a much of a market for anthology series. Yeah. Netflix have tried Love, Death and Robots, which are like 10 minute short sci-fi shorts. And uh, yeah, the quality uh, isn't there uh, based on the stories that they've got and the short running times. It's also this, I don't know who is at fault of this, if it's our fault as an audience or if it's Hollywood's fault or producer's fault or the uh, the artist's fault. But it seems to me that uh, uh, these anthology series work best with genre fiction. And, you know, I can see I can see why that is. I'd not necessarily advocate to change different, but there is this sort of uh, implicit need for them to be high budget. Or at least there's a threshold of budget below which they won't do them. And I don't know, but I mean, I, I don't have any details. Uh, I don't remember exactly how much the original Twilight Zone cost or the original um, Outer Limits cost. But I, I don't have the impression they were high budget TV shows. It's uh, usually set in like one location or a couple of uh, sets. I'm thinking of like that little little spaceman that uh, arrives on the farm and there's the woman trying to defend herself from it. And it turns out, you know, it's an American uh, space operation. Exactly. And it's it's it seems to me that that that's not done anymore, that, you know, you have they have to go. I don't know about this Guillermo de Toro uh, affair, but I have the impression that they are full of special effects and high budget episodes it's a real mix because um guillermo del toro's acting as producer although he has a writing credit on the first episode and they are mostly uh set in a few locations i think the um graveyard rats um the lovecraft adaptations uh really um pile on the budget 
to make sort of uh, recreations of early 20th century America, New England, Arkham. But some of the other episodes, like The Viewing, uh, only has a couple of like interior sets and like a, a, a car uh, car escape. Uh, and it makes use of like lighting and um, uh, great writing uh, and uh, actors like Eric Andre um, really uh, selling their performances like close-ups on their faces. Uh, uh, Peter Weller from Robocop. The special effect is not the only source of of budget, it's the actors. And if you hire name actors, the budget is going to balloon up inevitably. That's what really costs. But there, there are no there are no massive actors in you've got character actors that like F. Murray Abraham and uh like they they're given the the time on screen to really sell the lines. So you can see like the writing's very meticulous at leading us to various points and ratcheting up thing up the tension. And each episode has a different um sort of creative in charge. So you um like Graveyard Rats has the uh writer and director of the Cube um movies. Oh, the uh, he has an Italian sounding name, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And that that's based on an EC comic. And then you've got the viewing, which is by the guys that did Mandy. And it takes a sort oh, of similar uh, Cos- Panos Cosmaros, I think his name yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, a similar approach to like the aesthetics. And uh like the final episode is like um uh, is it Jennifer Kent? And uh, like she did the Babadook, and it's uh, a ghost story set in a like a house on an island. Okay, which I have not seen. That uh, that's an Australian movie, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I have not seen it. Uh, but I mean, my point is that perhaps they'll be more uh, they'll be more inclined to fund them. Hollywood would be more inclined to fund these kind of TV shows if uh, the there were there were people who could do them at low budgets. I think like this year has shown that like. Like you said earlier, there's a, a, a genre uh, material is really great for anthology series, but this year has seen horror films really carry the box office. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like that's been the case for a long time. I don't think it's just this year. I mean, because there's always, every year there's a, a couple, usually from A24 or something similar, where uh, a couple of horror movies that tend to, uh, uh, tend to dominate box office. I, I'm not so sure. Like there was a gap between um, sort of uh, the so-called elevated horror of um, uh, oh, um, I'm trying to think. I'm blanking now. Um, the the visit to the Swedish cult. Um, Midsommar. Yeah, Midsommar. There's like a gap between that. The Quiet Place was after that. Oh really? Oh, that wasn't a very good horror movie. <laughs> maybe, maybe I have uh, maybe I have my dates mixed up, but I, I remember that one doing very well at the box office. Yeah, but like this year has really seen a, like a, a, a expansion in sort of the ideas and approaches to horror movies. So you got like Smile and Barbarian, and like audiences are really responding to that. And yeah, yeah. But um, Cabinet of Curiosities uh, is great because if you don't like one episode, there's another episode that uh, might uh, win you over. And each one has a different approach to the material. And like they're adapting different uh, stories, EC graphic novels. Um, some of them are original as well. And there's going to be a second series as well. Okay, well, that's that's something. And yeah, the last thing I'd like to point out that I watched is uh, All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, based on your recommendation. Okay, uh, what, what how, did you like it? Did you enjoy it? I thought it was phenomenal, and I'm surprised that like it hasn't appeared on like top ten. Uh, lists of the year because it's just like the recreation of trench warfare. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about top ten lists, but it is has been very well received. Yeah, I just like it's. It seems like it, people talked about it, and like I haven't seen much about it since. But it's I, just like phenomenal. 
Yeah, I mean, he was nominated for a bunch of Golden Globes, and we might talk about the Golden Globes in the news section, but... Uh, or he was nominated for one Golden Globe, uh, the best foreign film, which is, I think, fair. Uh, but I think the one... I mean, I did mention that they leave certain parts of the novel out, and uh, certain, certain important parts, and a lot of people have taken issue with that. I don't think it's a majority of people. Uh, but I can understand, because it, it the novel is... Um, uh, the part that taken out would have been hard because uh, would have been hard to adapt in in cinema because it is about sort of like the internal struggle of of the protagonist not being able to understand to understand the the meaning of the war and his place in the war and that's I mean that's hard to translate into spectacle which is what the film is it's like the sort of a the clash of spectacle and horror yeah. And sort of like the idea about sort of like portraying something in a as a matter of spectacle, but something that truly horrifies you. And that, that's what I appreciate about the movie. It's the movie that made me the most feel like I was there experiencing the war. Absolutely. Like that scene where they take the trench and then there's the rumble of the tanks approaching. And like everything after that is pure horror stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like, I don't think I've ever seen a World War One film on that scale. As, and consistently stuck in battles like that. Yeah, I can't. Remember, I can't think of any uh, right now. I mean, there's uh, the the one that came just a few years before 1917. Yeah, it's uh, supposed to be a one shot uh, movie. I haven't actually seen it. I have. I haven't seen that one. That's uh, like also, I think a World War One film that's set entirely during the war, right? Because of course it's a one shot. So yeah. Yeah, it's a guy trying to get a message to his brother's regiment before they go over the top. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I think in relation to this podcast, Parasite beat it to the Best Picture uh, Oscar, didn't it? Uh, may yeah, did they come out the same year? That makes I think so. Everybody, I like, uh, I think Trump was very offended. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think he he's seen either of them. But yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So uh, w- what else? Yep, that's uh, been my cultural consumption. As soon as uh, we finish this podcast, I'm going to go back to watching um, Juon Origins and hopefully um, finding out if uh, this ghost uh, gets defeated or not. Uh, all right. Uh, so I can jump into my cultural consumption. And I like you, I spend the whole, I was on holiday. I spend, you know, watching a lot of uh, TV and films that are more or less unremarkable. We watched, you know, some of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings movies, rewatched rather. But uh, one thing that I did watch that uh, left an impression of me, and I watched this on the plane, was the third installment of the Clerks trilogy by Kevin Smith. Oh, any good? And I, I, I thought so. Uh, Kevin Smith gets a lot of rap uh, and uh, supposedly has declined as director. And maybe, yeah, some of the films that he's released uh, since 2010, maybe, I forget exactly, have been atrocious. I don't know if you've seen any of them. No, the only one I can think of is Tusk. Uh- yeah, all of them. I've seen that one too. Yeah, that's. I think that came out around 2010, 2013, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, have been atrocious. But I think all his Clerks movies, obviously some stuff that he did in the 90s is noteworthy. Uh, Clerks is great. It's a great film. I always loved Clerks. Clerks 2, uh, people like to kind of look down on that one, but I also thought it was a decent film. Uh, and then Clerks 3, I thought it was a, a nice, a proper conclusion to the to the storyline. I thought it was a funny movie. I thought it was it was a it was a great movie. It's essentially uh it's somewhat like the first movie. It's somewhat autobiographical uh hmm. that it kind of uh, about Kevin Smith's uh, life, but it's sort of uh it's about them making a movie, making the first movie. The characters in Clerks 
make uh, a movie similar to what it was the real story behind the making of Clerks 1. That's essentially uh, the story behind Clerks 3. Okay, write what you know. Yeah, and it's it's funny. I thought it's the drama, I thought it works well. Again, nothing to drive home about, not a masterpiece. I don't think it was sort of like had the same power as the first Clerks movie, but other over that, I thought it was a pretty good pretty good, pretty good way to end the trilogy. Oh. And it worked on an airplane flight as well, so <laughs> Exactly. I I honestly even even outside of an airplane, if anybody has the chance, I do recommend watching it, especially if you've seen the first the uh, don't watch it if you haven't seen Clerks One and Two, but if you have, I, I'd say this check this out because I think it's 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 okay. It's good enough. Yeah. Anything else? Uh yes. So I did I did actually also watch Decisions Decision to Leave a few days ago. Okay. And what are your thoughts? I think I would agree with you. I enjoyed it. I can definitely there are some really interesting things that uh Park Chung Wook does with the film uh and so i can definitely see why he won the best director award at can not having saying that his what his competition was of course but just based on this film alone i can see he does some really interesting thing and some of it maybe part due to cinematography and some of it maybe part due to the editing but they all work together which is what the director's sort of job is they really work together to do some really interesting thing with the structure of the film but i couldn't help by the end i just felt a little underwhelmed with it i don't know it didn't I don't think I'm going to remember this film. It, it kind of left me the same way as The Handmaiden. Like, there was impressive... It's pieces. It was impressive in pieces, but the whole film, it was not really anything more than some of its parts. Yeah. I don't know. It's... Um, I felt his the wife character was essentially almost like a token character. Didn't really add much to the story. I was not entirely... Uh, can, the ending felt a little bit of a disappointment. I was thinking after watching it, I was thinking about what you said that uh, he wanted uh, what it was exactly how you put it that he wanted to make a love story where the characters don't say "I love you." Yeah, something like that. And that sounds very profound the second you hear it. But if you think about it for a little bit, it's really not a it's really not that a big deal of an achievement. Like there are tons of movies, uh, love stories where the characters don't say "I love you." including the one that we're talking about today. Which is all about repression. <laughs> exactly. So this achievement is, is not a big of a, a big achievement. And I think that's kind of sums up this movie, that I think he, he wanted to do something with it, and I think the film was bigger in his head than it actually came out to. And I was, I'm a little bit disappointed because, you know, Park Chang-wook is a fantastic director, and this just was not a fantastic film. It was a good film, but definitely uh left some something to be desired yeah I, I, it's kind of emotionally hollow I, I you can see where it's going from the very start and the ending was no surprise i was i was hoping the ending would go in a completely different direction did, did you have the feeling that they didn't know how to end it it just kind of ended right like i don't uh, spoiler alert if you don't want to know the ending take take off your earphones right now but uh, the end it ends with her burying herself right on the beach and I, there is a reason why she does that, if you're just logically following the story. There's a reason, but it was such an unearned moment, in my opinion. There was, I didn't feel like that, that had to be the ending. There were was, there was so many other things, but it just, it just felt like he was, he was staring at a blank page of the script, didn't know what to do, so he just ended it. <laughs> yeah. No, she's made the decision to leave, and she's going to hold in forever. But I, I was just, during that final scene, I was just willing the film to go in the other direction that he would actually find a, a maybe a happy ending. But I, uh, it's emotionally hollow, but like I did find it funny. And 
in many parts, especially with the different partners the, the detective has. And uh, yeah, I want to go back to it to look at all the technical aspects of it more so than the actual story itself. Uh, a lot of people say the story is quite complex and uh, the use of technology and everything, but I find it quite easy to follow. And I, I don't think it's the first movie to use technology like that in a in an invest a mystery, essentially a mystery. I don't I don't think it. I mean, yes, he did it well, but I don't think it's he deserves any credit for being the first to do any any of that, right? Yeah, there, there are probably others, but I this is the, the best one that I've seen so far. Yeah, in terms of like putting text messages on screen and uh, integrating maps and stuff. I, uh, I maybe there, I don't there, know. There are plenty of other directors who have done uh, who have attempted this, especially over the pandemic. Where how do you visualize people talking online? Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, the technical stuff is what I want to go back. Yeah, there was a. Uh, I, I have to. I, I definitely have no desire to rewatch the film, but there are just certain shots and scenes that I would love to kind of draw. There was one scene, and I, I hope I'm not misremembering this, but there was one scene where the two characters, uh, one of their earliest interrogations, one of the early interrogations in the film, where the detective and the the woman, the female character, are sitting on the same plane. What it appears like the same plane, like they're both like at the same distance from the camera, but one of them is out of focus and one of them is in focus, and they that sort of goes back and forth. That was it's kind of blew my mind how that like how did he do that? It must have been a composed shot. That's uh, a video of that has been doing the rounds on Twitter, and um, I'll have to send it to you after. But I, it's like involves like two cameras, like um, po I think there's like post processing. The only way it could have been done, because but it, it's it's a genius idea. I, I don't know who who gets credit for that if it's Park Chang-wook or the cinematographer, but it is a really, really. It kind of I kind of had to pause in, on that scene just to, to, to look at it carefully because it was it was very interesting how how it looked. The sort of like the effect that it had because you obviously you can do tricks with a camera. Anybody can can experiment with the camera and do tricks, but to do something that lands and and has a, a, a measurable and profound effect on the audience is is hard. And I I thought that did it here. Yeah. He didn't necessarily make the movie better, but he made it interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Also, did you recognize the main character, the the male lead? Uh, I, uh, no, the name doesn't ring a bell. Park Hai-il. He is the suspected serial killer in Memories of Murder. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, the young guy, the young guy who, who whom we suspect the most to be the serial killer. Oh, he's really grown up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's 20 years ago, but yeah. That, that was a good lead performance. Um, didn't really get much uh, sexual chemistry between the two, and I think the film would have really worked better with it. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I want to go back to the technical stuff. Yeah, I mean, the performances were fantastic. I have no complaint there from both of them. Critics made a comparison with uh, Yasuzo Masamura film called A Wife Confesses. And, Interesting. Um, I have not seen similar, it. Similar setup where an older guy is uh, people think he's been murdered by his wife after he falls off a mountain. And um, essentially, uh, it's got one of Ayako Wakao's like, most sizzling performances. And you're never quite sure if like she's guilty or not, or if she's earned uh, a lot of the hostility she gets for it. film. And uh, yeah, I recommend uh, A Wife Confesses. Hopefully we can address it in a later episode of the podcast. Okay. Um, so, uh, the other film that I watched was The Banshees of Finisherin. 
Okay, I've heard good things about that. Yes, uh, it, it is a candidate for the for my favorite film of the year. I have not. We might have that episode where we discuss our top films of the year sometime in the new year, but this is definitely going to be a candidate. It's a fantastic film. Uh, it's streaming in the U.S. I don't know if it's available anywhere in the U.K. It must be. It had a cinema run, and a friend of mine went to it, and she uh, came out of it saying, "You've got to see this, Jason." Unfortunately, I didn't see it. It is essentially about two friends who stop being friends uh, in an isolated island during the Irish Civil Civil War in the early 20s. Mm. Uh, And it is, I I would classify it as absurdist, somewhat comedic, but maybe a a comedy drama, something along those lines, uh, starring uh, Colin Farrell and the other actor whose name I, I always forget, the guy who played Moody in the Harry Potter movies. Brendan Gleeson, is it? Yes, yes, yes. He, he, and they were together in in Bruges. In Bruges, also a fantastic movie. Uh, but it's great. It's great. I was I was a bit disappointed uh, by the director's. I don't know if it was the previous film, the Three Billboards film. Uh, I always thought that was a massively overrated film. Uh, it, I mean, it, it got a lot of attention at, and it uh, won a lot of awards. But it, to me, it was a film by by someone who doesn't really understand the place he's making a film about. But this one, he clearly understands the place he's making a film about. And it's just a fantastic film besides that or uh, regardless of that. So I recommend it. I mean, it, 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 the theatrical run was a while ago, so it must be streaming right now. We'll, I'll have to look it up later. Uh, at least that's the case in the US. I don't know if it's still in theaters in the UK. Yeah, we talk about back in November. Okay, all right, yes. Uh, so that's it. Um, what else, what else? Oh, I, I finished Persona 4 that I was playing. It ended up by, it took me over 100 hours to finish it, but I did finish it. And uh, I think what I said last time stands that I thought the story is um, leaves a lot to be desired. Pretty much the entire story happens in the last 10 hours of the game. Oh. <laughs> Like the entire story, including figuring out who the murderer is. Okay, don't spoil it because I haven't. No, I'm not going to spoil it. And also, also it's it's like uh, there there's absolutely unless I missed it, I don't know, but there is absolutely no hint as to the one who ends up being revealed as the murderer ends up being the murderer in persona form. Before there's you know you play ninety hours of something. Uh, yeah, of, of an alleged mis- mi- murder mystery story where you you make absolutely no progress into five figuring out who is the murderer, why is the murderer, why is that person the murderer, and in the end, it's just it might as well have been anybody because I don't think there's been any hint as to why that person is the murderer. Whatever uh, I've seen on the internet, people making the case that the this game and all the Persona games are really about the character development, not about the plot. And I can sort of see that. I can, I can, I can appreciate that. And indeed, the the story, the 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 entire game takes an interesting approach to character development, which it's sort of integrated with the gameplay. And I, I I think I appreciate that. I I enjoyed that aspect of it. And the gameplay is is of course enjoyable as well. Uh, it was inevitable that I would pick up Persona Five. Uh, and I'm playing that now. Uh, I'm not playing it as as frequently. I think I'm going to go slowly on this one. I don't like the visual design of Persona Five. Uh, it seems I don't know. I I, I thought it was. I, I don't like it. It's it's weird. It's too busy. There's way too many things flashing on screen at the same time. Uh, sometimes the text is in weird places. It's surrounded by weird font and weird colors. It's it's just outright strange. Whereas the Persona Four had a very clean, neat 
easy to read design uh, or visual aesthetic, whereas five is just way too busy, in my opinion. Uh. Uh, if you just look at screenshot, maybe you'll understand what I'm talking about. I, I, I thought it was a terrible idea to go the way they did it, but oh well. Uh, but yeah, anyway, that's uh, that's been my media consumption for these last few weeks since uh, last we spoke. Okay. Okay, so now that we're through that section, we can uh, jump into our news for this episode. And uh, we have quite a, quite a bit of news, so Jason, why don't you start with that? So uh, first up is uh, Decision to Leave uh, and how it dominated the Blue Dragon Awards in uh, Korea. It won Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor for Park Hai-il. Uh, Best Actress for Tang Wei, um, Best Screenplay, and uh, yeah, it stands at number eight at like top 10 grossing films in Korea so far this year. And just to clarify for the audience one more time, the Blue Dragon Awards are one of the major award ceremonies in, in South Korea. Mm. And uh, yeah, I'm sure we've mentioned it in every episode Absolutely, but it's a it's a good uh, it's a good thing to write. It's maybe the Oscar equivalent, or at the very least, the Golden Globe equivalent. And it's probably been one of the uh, best performing films critically uh, from Korea this year. And uh, one of the other highlights awards uh, went to um, Kim Hai Yoon of The Girl on the Bulldozer, who won Best New Actress. Was she nominated for Best Actress? Got out because I would have seriously given her that. I thought she was that good in that movie. I'm not sure if she was nominated for Best Actress. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, what's in production, we've learned that Ang Lee's Bruce Lee biopic uh, is all go. It will star, star his son, Mason Lee. Uh, Mason has been training for the role for the last three years. So uh, Mason Lee does have acting credits to his name. He's been in the Taiwanese romantic comedy Stand By Me. And uh, we've mentioned this film before, the Hong Kong serial killer film Limbo, uh, which netted a bunch of awards at the Hong Kong Film Awards. And uh, he's also been in the Taiwanese crime thriller Who Killed Cock Robin? And for both films, he's been nominated uh, for the Golden Horse Award for Best Supporting Actor. Have you seen the previous Bruce Lee biopic uh, starring, uh, uh, I mean, it's an American movie. Yeah, I've, I saw it back in the 90s when it was first released. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have any opinion on it. This is why I'm like on Netflix a lot, looking at '90s movies just to refresh my memory as to whether any of them are good or not. <laughs> Other than being somewhat inaccurate, from what I've read, um, somewhat maybe over romanticized, it's sort of suffering from the usual shortcomings that all biopics, at least or American biopics, suffer from. I I thought it was a decent film. I enjoyed. I remember enjoyed it. It must have been. It must be over ten years since last I watched it, but I only have good good memories uh for about it yeah and uh yeah like uh just moving on to uh or moving back to korean films uh netflix are working on a bong joon ho documentary um this documentary has a working title yellow door looking for director bong's unreleased short film and as the title suggests it delves into the history of bong joon ho's uh sort of earliest works his first short film which was a stop motion uh, movie called looking for paradise and it was made by bong when he was in university and it was reportedly only seen by 10 members of the university cinephile club which had the name yellow door hence the title of the documentary and it was screened uh in christmas 1992 and has never been seen since uh in terms of festivals uh 
If you're listening to this, you can stream independent Japanese movies legally for free, courtesy of Japanese Film Festival Plus. Uh, this is going to be taking place on the websites, uh, and all you have to do is sign up via email, and it runs from December 15th until June 15th, and it features 12 independent films selected by managers of independent cinemas from across Japan. The films are available in many countries um, outside of Japan. And uh, the program of films is going to be complemented by interview videos with directors, actors, and interview articles with uh, managers of the mini theaters. So this is a great way to get an insight into the various regions of Japan, the cultural institutions, and like the whole indie film scene. Um, and the films will be screened over two periods. So the first period has already started. It runs from December 15th to March 15th, and there are six films. And then the second period, which also consists of six films, will run from March 15th to June 15th. So you have all that time to watch a mixture of dramas and documentaries. And uh, I think there's like one experimental sort of dance musical. I've only seen a couple of these films on the edge of their seats and um, Double Deer Town. And uh, they're both very good. And the rest of them look like uh, high quality movies. So just go over to the Japan Film Festival Plus website. And uh, all you have to do is sign up by email. Don't have to pay anything. And you can watch these films. All right. All right. Great. And um, uh, we'll end on a sad note. Two Japanese directors passed away in the last month. Um, the first is Yoichi Sai who's probably most famous for directing crime thrillers and his appearance in Gohato. Uh, like notable films include Blood and Bones uh, with Takeshi Kitano and um, uh, Mosquito on the Tenth Floor. And we also lost Yoshishige Yoshida, or Kijo Yoshida, as he is also known. A film writer, director, film theorist. Oh, he's got many different talents, or he had many different talents. And... Um, we know him primarily as a filmmaker of like avant-garde works that captured the fervid politics of 60s, 70s Japan, uh, particularly the trilogy, um, like a political trilogy, Eros plus Massacre, Coup d'etat, and Heroic Pur Purgatory, which we named this podcast after. Yes, yes, yes. Very, very fitting. And um, yeah, uh, just uh, s sad to lose uh, to any filmmakers. This year has been pretty brutal with um, Jean-Luc Godard as well. And uh, yeah. Uh, just have to say rest in peace uh, to Kijo Yoshida and Yoichi Sai. Yes, absolutely. And uh, yeah, that sums up our news summary. Well, there's more. one more item that you did mention, and that is the Golden Globe nominations were announced this week. Ah, and decision, okay. decision to Leave was uh, one of the best foreign language nominations. Uh, and the other one was um, All Quiet on the Western Front and a, a couple of others that I don't remember right now. Okay, uh, so it's it's that's a good not not necessarily guarantee, but that's a good indication that decision decision to leave might also make the Oscar nomination. Uh, and of course, we know that it has been submitted as South Korea's entry, so it's definitely eligible. Yep, and um, Japan submitted Plan Seventy Five by Chie Hayakawa. Yes, uh, I I have a feeling that one won't make it, <laughs> uh, but uh, decision to leave. Uh, is uh, has some has a few good chances, so I think that that's uh, that was it for our news segment, and now we can finally jump into our discussion of Wong Kar Wai's turn of the millennium uh, film, In the Mood for Love, the second part of his unofficial trilogy, 
which encompasses days of being wild, in the mood for love, and 2046. Uh, so Jason, as always, why don't you give us a short summary of the film and what awards did it win, which I'm sure it was many. So, uh, the film takes place in Hong Kong, circa 1962, and we watch as two new tenants move into neighbouring flats. First we meet Su Li Zhen, a shipping company secretary, whose husband often spends time away on business trips. Next is Chao Mo Wan, a journalist whose wife often stays out late. The two soon discover that their respective partners are cheating on them and doing so with each other. Over time, during many lonely evenings, Su Li Zhen and Chao Mo Wan become friends and confidants who help each other cope with their respective partners' infidelities. Then they fall in love. Uh, the cast has Maggie Chung play Su Li Zhen, Tony Lung play Chao Mo Wan, uh, and the film's written and directed by Wong Kar-wai, and um, it features production, design, editing, and wardrobe uh, artistry from William Chang, who's a familiar Wong Kar-wai collaborator, and it, uh, cinematography comes from Christopher Doyle, and also Mark Lee Ping Bin. Uh, awards it won uh, a many, uh, this is probably one of the most garlanded uh uh, films we've covered this season uh, at the Asia Pacific Film Festival 2000 it won Best Cinematography and Best Editing at BAFTA it was nominated uh, for Best Film not in the English Language but lost to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon at the British Independent Film Awards 2001 it won Best Foreign Independent Film Cahier du Cinema in 2000 placed it in 5th place in its top 5 films of the year which uh, yeah seems like a crazy decision I haven't heard of any of the other films uh, in the list. Cannes Film Festival 2000, it won Best Actor for Tony Leung, and he became the first Hong Kong actor to win the award, and it won a technical grand prize for editing and cinematography. It was nominated for the Palm d'Or, but lost to Dancer in the Dark by Lars von Trier. Um, also uh, uh, up for awards that year was Code Unknown by Michael Haneke, Devils on the Doorstep, which we've covered here, um, Gohato, and Yi Yi. I think, uh, so Devils on the Doorstep won um, the grand prize of the jury, right? And uh, uh, In the Mood for Love won Best Director, you said? Uh, uh, won Best Actor. Oh, okay. Who won Best Director that year? Uh, Edward Yang for Yi Yi. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And Devils won grand prize of the jury. And Dancer in the Dark won... uh, The Palm uh, Door. The Palm Door, which I always felt, I mean, it's an interesting movie, but I don't know if you've seen it. I think we've talked, we've... I'm sure we've mentioned it before. I don't know how I feel about that movie. I think it's interesting, uh, but uh, I think it did not stand the test of time as much of some of these other films, in my opinion. I, I don't see anybody talk about that film. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of Lars von Trier movies, with a few exceptions, don't really stand the test of time, have not stood the test of time. I, I mean, I go back to them, I revisit them. I think he's an interesting director. But I think they don't age that well in terms of, not in terms of content, but in terms of technique, mostly in terms of quality and value. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, um, oh, what was that dogma approach to filmmaking? Yeah, which I, he's not, I mean, he's not adhered to it that much. I mean, he's made a couple of movies that adhere to it very strictly, but otherwise he's, uh, he's, uh, I mean, he's deviated from it quite, quite frequently. Yeah, he was a staple of like, oh yeah, especially of like Melancholia. But um, yeah, he was a staple of 90s cinema. Everybody was talking about him and he's just kind of faded off 
them out after yeah. like, Nymphomania. And, and again, I, I mean, Melancholia, I enjoyed it very much when it came out, and uh, Antichrist, and uh, uh, the one, the uh, Dogville. It, it seems like shock and awe in the moment, and then it yeah. just fades away very quickly. I think, I think all his films, maybe not his very latest film, but all his films, maybe before 2010, were in one way or another experimental films. Yeah. And I think they just that's what the the sort of like the risk is with experimental film. But anyway, let's uh let's not uh div- digress anymore about Lars von Trier. <laughs> yeah. Let's go back uh to the Chinese Film Media Awards. Uh, uh In the Mood for Love won Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Cinematography at the Caesar Awards uh in France 2001. It won Best Foreign Film at the European Film Awards. It won the Screen International Awards at the German Film Awards. It won Best Foreign Film at the Golden Horse Film Festival 2000. It took Best Leading Actress, Cinematography, Makeup, Costume Design, but it lost uh Best Director to Johnny Toe for The Mission, and it lost Best Feature Film to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. At the Hong Kong Film Awards 2001, it won Best Actor, Best Actress, Film Editing, Art Direction, Costume and Makeup. Hong Kong Film Critics Society Awards uh, nominated, oh, uh, gave it Film of Merit and Best Director. National Society Film Critics Awards 2002 gave it Best Foreign Language Film and Cinematography. And this year, uh, Sight and Sound, back in November, uh, announced the results for its uh, prestigious greatest films of all time, Critics Poll, and In the Mood for Love placed fifth, rising from its previous position of 24, uh, which uh, was given to it in 2012. And it is the highest ranked film that was made between 1975 and 2022. Okay. It looks like it looks like in a lot of these awards, especially the Asian awards uh or the Asian centered awards, but even the Oscars because this film was not even nominated for an Oscar. It didn't even make the shortlist for the Oscar, but of course the one that won that year was Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon. It seems that was the sort of like the main competition for a yeah. lot of these awards and perhaps it is fitting to compare these film these two films in terms of merit but let's do that later towards the end of the episode uh and instead let's start the episode with our usual sort of question um what was your first experience with this film when did you first see it and what did you first think of it and maybe what did you first think of when you if when you've watched the entire trilogy the entire sort of unofficial trilogy uh of Wong Kar Wai so yeah, I've mentioned this before, but Chongqing Express was my entry into the cinema of Wong Kar Wai, and I saw it before in the Mood for Love, and it was kind of like it's that period of cinema uh, Wong Kar Wai's output that I really like that nineties style of days of being wild and um, fallen angels and happy together, having the sort of energy and sort of connected camera work and improvisation to it. Uh, in the Mood for Love, uh, it's much more like uh, I think I first watched it. Uh, with the Tartan Asia DVD release. Now, I remember being left like emotionally devastated by the ending of the film uh, and the, its story of love lost. And the plot is relatively simple, but it was all about getting caught up in the atmosphere of, the, of like 1960s Hong Kong and this like torrid uh, sort of almost love affair. Uh, uh, getting like into the intimate lives of these two people gradually falling in love and um yeah like uh the production design and the cinematography and the performances were all intoxicating um i don't think i understood how it all meshed together it was just like kind of like looking at a painting from afar and like being able to admire it and it, like subsequent rewatches is like getting closer to the painting and looking at all the different strokes and uh, sort of like uh, techniques used to put it together and finding like so much complexity to it so it's been a real delight um 
And then I watched 2046 and that left me completely cold because um, I like it was just like a little overblown, very sort of novelistic um, in its approach. Um, and like the sci-fi CG wasn't good. And um, yeah, I was disappointed of when I watched uh, 2046 and that was in a cinema. I bought the DVD, but I hadn't watched it in like uh, until we uh, announced that uh, we were going to cover in the mood for love. So I got the DVD out and I watched it and I was a bit more impressed because I watched the trilogy, Days of Being Wild, In the Mood for Love and uh, 2046 together. And I could see like the continuation of the story and the themes uh, and so on. Um, I think Days of Being Wild is still my personal favourite. Um, I think In the Mood for Love is probably like the best in terms of technical achievements. Um, 2046 has gone up in my estimation a little bit. And so like that's been my experience of it. I must say that I, the 20, uh, it's not 2046 was not the first, I don't think was the first Wong Kar Wai film. It was definitely early. Uh, but I definitely watched it before In the Mood for Love. So I think I watched 2046, In the Mood for Love, and then Days of Being Wild. Uh, was um, was the last one that I watched. In fact, it's it's not even clear to me <laughs> that Days of Being Wild is part of the trilogy. I mean, I know it is. I don't think Maggie Chunk's character is the same one as in The Mood for Love. No, there's a like there's a reference in In the Mood for Love, like the family's gone to the Philippines, and then 2046 continues the storyline for Lulu. And um, uh, Tony Leung's character. Yeah. And so yeah. Uh, at, at the end of Days of Being Wild, you have Tony Leung's character getting ready to go out for a night of womanizing. Yeah, but it's it's very vague. It's it's uh, it's. Uh, I mean, I rewatched it again, like you. I watched the trilogy back to back, and I think the connection between the Mood for Love and Twenty Forty Six is a lot, a lot, lot stronger than the first, than one and two. Yeah, it's like nearly a decade that's gone by, though, because Days of Being Wild didn't do so great at the box office, so Wong Kar Wai had to put like the ideas on ice. Exactly, exactly. Um, and that said, I, I, I always enjoy 2046. It could be the time I watched it, maybe it appealed to me personally, uh, but I always I always really liked sort of like the contriveness of it and the sort of like the artificiality and sort of like the, all the the cinematography and the editing that uh that uh Wong Kar Wai does and in many ways it's it text stylistically is a lot sim- more similar to In the Mood for Love than any of Wong Kar Wai's 90s stuff uh but i feel like he go he goes farther than it and In the Mood for All he, he always felt a little bit half-hearted like he wanted to make the transition to a different style of of filmmaking, but he didn't have the courage to do it yet. Whereas in 2046, he doesn't care. He just does it. Uh, and I, I have to say, uh, In the Mood for Love has always been my least favorite of the trilogy. And I think it remains my least favorite of the trilogy. But that's not to say that I don't like the film. I, I enjoy the film a lot. I, I, I have not seen a Wong Kar Wai film that I have not enjoyed. And of course, I have not seen some of his later stuff. Uh, oh, actually, that's not true. I, I did not enjoy The Grandmaster that much. Oh no! Yeah, like uh, in the mood for love, it's like there's a a, a marked uh, increase in like the sort of like formalism that he takes to like the visuals. Whereas like his nineties output has this tremendous energy and uh, like the stories behind it. You know, you find out like some of the ways he got the visuals were like from like having to adapt to certain changes in circumstances. and or, or maybe like happy accidents in the editing room. That's that's I mean that's what I really appreciate about his '90s stuff. It's uh, 
it's it's it feels like he just picks the camera and goes where where uh, in the mood for love feels just so precise but kind of like like precise from a director who's not used to that yet and i just something about it never quite never quite appealed to me whereas like you said his his 90 stuff is so energetic it's so it has an improvisational quality to it and and i think the reason why i can tolerate 2046 more is because it's so far removed both in terms of time but also stylistically from his 90 stuff that I don't feel the need to compare to compare it with. Whereas in the mood for love, I can't help but compare it with his with his '90s stuff. And maybe that's a bit unfair on my part, but it is what it is. And it's also I often and again I, I'm going to sound critical, but I, I do love the film. I do enjoy the film, but I'm going to get out the criticism early. But I I always found the love story a bit unremarkable in the mood for love. And it's I think it's I've seen this film three or four times and I always forget exactly the details of what happens. I never remember it. I remember shots. I remember all the slow motion scenes. I remember the soundtrack. I remember some of the uh, some of the camera movements, but I never remember the story. The story always felt like in- inconsequential. Uh, yeah, this is definitely about the mood. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I but I can't say that about other Wong Kar Wai films because other Wong Kar Wai films the mood is very important but I also remember story very well you remember the the break-in in his apartment in, in Chunking Express or you remember the serial killer story in uh, Fallen Angel or, or happens- just, just buying tins of yeah, just buying tins of pineapples just the, yeah. for the date but in this one it just feels like a lot of gazing at each other yeah, it's, it's you, we're, not, we're not coming to this film for the plot <laughs> I think that's a mistake some people make yeah but there is a plot. I mean, there is a plot, right? There's a very, I would say, maybe not a simple story. The story is somewhat elaborate, somewhat, somewhat contrived, I would say, because it is about to a couple that discovers that their their respective partners are cheating on them with each other. So they're trying to, to understand what happened. They're trying to understand why that happened and try to recreate what happened and try to understand what to do after that. So there is, a, I would say, there is a non-trivial plot to this movie. In the Mood for Love definitely feels like that sort of turning point in his career where he's got much more uh, financial backing from like uh, like uh, European companies and he's able to invest more in terms of like his shooting style. Like uh, he often shoots about scripts, so he's able to experiment more. And his uh, films from then on out um, get more elaborate and ornate and. Uh, you know, sometimes I get impatient with his later output. Like, is this is a director in love with the sound of his own voice? Yeah, but I mean, that's. Like, I'm glad you brought that because is that a good thing? Because I think <sighs> we, we can all agree that after In the Mood for Love, maybe the only movie that he's done that is worth, even if you agree with, don't agree with me, that 2046 is a good film, which I enjoy it, and that I can admit to its flaws very easily. 2046 is not his best film, but I would say it's his last good film. I I would agree with that. Is there any other film that he's done after In the Mood for Love that is worth a damn? Uh, To be honest, I've only seen the Miramax cut of uh, The Grandmaster, which was in cinemas at the time. So let's say there is a cut of The Grandmaster that might not be bad. What else? Uh, I don't know my blueberry nights. Um. I don't think so. So, so that's my question: is that is that a good thing that he uh, that that turning point in his career? I don't think it is a good thing. Is it a a, a matter of a director not being able to function without limitations, which he had in the 90s, but he does not have anymore? Or is it a matter that the director 
is too, like you said, too in love with the sound of his own voice and the the image of his own camera angles. But it's also like who he's collaborating with, because Christopher Doyle is a key collaborator, and it's kind of like how much involvement has Christopher Doyle had in, um, like he worked on Twenty Forty Six, but he had to leave uh, midway through that, didn't he? Oh, did he? Do, he did not do the Grandmaster. I don't know, but yeah, Christopher Doyle's like the two that the partnership that the two had helped define like nineties his nineties output. Yeah, and I I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I do consider Christopher Doyle to be one of the best cinematographers to have ever worked. Absolutely. So that would have been, yes, he did not work with him on the Grandmaster, and that's a big blow. I did not realize that. So maybe you're right. Uh, it could be that we often sort of assign all credit to directors, but like I mentioned in the case of uh, Decision to Leave with Park Chang-wook, some of the things that I enjoyed about the movie, I don't know if it's him or if it's his cinematographer or in, or he. It, and or his editor, or maybe a combination of both, which is, made, I guess, the most likely scenario. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, uh, like with his 90s output, you can see the fingerprints of his other collaborators quite clearly. And, um, like, he's now working solo. And, uh, yeah, like his films look good, but uh, it's just, yeah, he's in love with the sound of his own voice. Well, it's not necessarily, I mean, DP, I mean, collaborators do more than their job. I mean, a uh, a DP has a specific job, an editor has a specific job, but it's also another voice on the set or in the production process. Even, or yeah, in which the is why like you can see the fingerprints. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's it's another uh, critical or a potentially construct, a source of constructive criticism that, he's no, that he no longer has, uh, in addition well, this, to this what... Is, this is Go quite ahead. interesting because um, Christopher Doyle had to leave In the Mood for Love. Uh, midway through production because it overran. It was supposed to be like a few months and it ended up being 15 months. And um, Mark Lee uh, Ping Bin was brought in and um, like he found it difficult working with Wong Kar Wai. He was like, he couldn't, it, like, he found it difficult interpreting like instructions and um, he would, uh, yeah, he said like he found a criticism that Wong Kar Wai um, gave um, quite harsh. And it's kind of like, you can see that, like that a partnership that Kawai had with Christopher Doyle, like the two were working hand in hand in synchronicity. They'd uh, established something together, uh, which was hard for Mark Lee Pingbing to recapture, I guess. Uh, exactly, exactly. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's a very reasonable explanation as to why it is. And I, I did mention that his, uh, his filmography declined afterwards, but, but he, it's not like he's been very prolific. I mean, he did 2046 in 2004. And then he did My Blueberry Nights, and then he did The Grandmaster, and that's it. He hasn't done anything since. Yeah, he's got a new film uh, ready for release, which is another one about memories of, uh, like, uh, 1970s? Is it 1960s, 70s, 80s? Is it Blossom Shanghai? Yeah, set in Shanghai, yeah. I think it's a, that's a TV series. Ah, okay, yeah. Oh, didn't he do a TV series as well? I do not know. I'm sure, did Wong Kar Wai do a TV series? This one is the one I'm looking at his uh, filmography and it is upcoming section, and that's the only one that's there in the upcoming section. Yeah, and it does appear to be a TV a TV series, uh, the story of a self-made millionaire in Shanghai during the '90s, uh, from a young opportunist with troubled past to the heights of the Gilded City. Yes, Blossoms of Shanghai. Yeah, uh, but yeah, and I think I don't remember if he was in the mood for love or uh, the 2046, but it, like a lot of the copies that made it to the festivals were not the final copies of the film. And I think this might have been 2046, so perhaps I'm mixing them up here, but that's why 
it did not maybe i was thinking that's maybe it didn't make the nomination for the oscars because the 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 copy that they got was not the finished copy but i think i'm thinking of 2046 when it made it to can uh an earlier draft of the film uh was was shown because they were running late in the production or in the post production rather was it he submitted it uh the morning of the day it was supposed to be screened and like it, he finished everything except the sound, like something like it was presented in mono instead of Dolby. I don't remember the details, but that sounds very plausible. Yeah, it's, it's something like it was presented in mono instead of Dolby. But yeah, he's known for editing while shooting and keep editing long afterwards to try and find the shape of the film. Yeah, well, I mean, Kurosawa did that, but Kurosawa was very efficient about it, and and his uh, post production time. Uh, uh, would be short and significant because he would put together while shooting it um, and so he would finish sometimes post-production will only take a few days because most of the film was edited and it was only the final shots that, that, that needed to be to be sliced together of course Kurosawa's editing was much much simpler yeah I'm just uh, just uh, to go back to um, Wong Kar Wai in television apparently he was involved in a series called Tong Wars okay and uh yeah, and that was uh, something he's working on concurrently with um, Blossoms of Shanghai. Okay. Uh, it's it's curious that he has been inactive because, like you said, it's... Um, and we're talking more about Wong Kar Wai than the film here, but we'll get to the film in a second. Uh, but, um, uh, uh, like you said, he probably has the freedom to do whatever he wants. Of course, unless there's a political reason why he can, but he never... Uh, he never struck me as a controversial cinema, a uh, controversial uh, figure as to have funding denied to him by the, the Chinese government. So I don't think there's any such reason that he's just been, uh, that he hasn't been working. I think it's just director's or writer's block that he doesn't know what his next project will be. Yeah, well, it took him 10 years to fully realize this trilogy of films. So like, he likes taking a long time on projects. He did other stuff yeah. in between, so he didn't have a shortage of ideas. And I, like, I love, uh, of course, it's different being young and it's different being older, but I do like uh, that he could just have an idea for a story, pick up the camera and do it, all while editing another film at the same time or being in post-production for another film, because that's what happened with the Chunking Express's The Ashes of Time. The Ashes of Time was being either filmed or being edited, and he just kind of felt like doing something else for a little bit, did Chunking Express. And then Fallen Angels was supposed to be like another part of Chunking Express, and he decided to make it his exactly. own film. So I, 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 like, I like that sort of that, that dynamism and that sort of like inventiveness that he had in the 90s and seems to have lost that and part of that is growing old and i think part of it is not having restrictions anymore because you can i mean you can find plenty of examples of directors who don't lose their prolificity uh their uh whatever the uh, adjective the adjective for prolific is but uh prolificness i think prolificness whatever uh yes they grow old ho, ho, ho sang so is one example well, um, takashi miki Takashi Miike, Son Siono. Um, I don't love his later stuff, but he's definitely not short of ideas. Oh, Nobuhiro Yamashita. I, I, again, it doesn't matter. So, so I think it's a combination of of both uh, uh, factors that I Ryuichi think he's just, Yeah. Um, 
But going back to In the Mood for Love, we talked about the possible effect of cinematography and editing, which makes this film, which I think it is, is paramount to portraying the kind of mood that uh, Wong Kar Wai was going for. But I don't want to underestimate the effect that the sets had on this movie, and perhaps more so than any other Wong Kar Wai film. Yeah, he, he wanted to recreate 1960s Hong Kong, and he had to go to... Well, the interiors he filmed in Hong Kong, but the uh, exterior scenes, the street scenes, and Singapore he filmed in Bangkok in Thailand because he wanted to capture some aspect of like um, uh, fadedness, loss, um, that would reflect what's going on with the characters. Yeah, and I think he does a better job than um, than uh, Days of Being Wild uh, in, in depicting that, but he also does a better job than 2046, but I... I don't think he was trying to be realistic in 2046 because 2046, I think it's meant to be more of an abstract movie. Mm. It's jumping back and forth between the novel or well, the writer and his imagination. Yeah, uh, but uh, in, in, in The Mood for Love, it's, it's not only the exterior scenes and the authenticity of the set, which is definitely there, but talking about sort of like the style that they portray because almost the entire movie is close-ups and shooting through narrow corridors, through window panes, through half-open doors uh, uh mirrors everywhere yeah like the the shots are often obscured by a, a, a prop or like a, a lamp or something and you get the feeling because there are all these obstructions because you're so close to the characters you feel like you're spying on them or you're getting into their most intimate se- secrets i that's I, I wrote that thing that you said exactly down but there, I, there's also a feeling of claustrophobia that i got i don't know if you got the same thing yeah, because all the sets are tight. It's like corridors, small rooms. And then you've also got like the lighting. The lighting will cast shadows on the characters, which look like uh, bars um, cast upon them. So they're like in a prison of some sort. And I guess it like, it partly reflects like the emotions they're holding back, but also the fact that they're in a very conservative society as well. They can't openly talk about their heartache and, uh, and uh, like their emotions. Exactly, exactly. Like... Uh... Like, sort of like the shame that they feel, even though they haven't done anything. Yeah, like, we're given billowing red curtains to sort of act as a metaphor for what they're feeling. They can't say it out loud. So that, that's a question that I had. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, but I uh, just I wonder if there's an alternative interpretation that you had. But you, I like what you said, that we're spying on the characters. And I'm pretty sure that was sort of like the, the, uh, the type of, style that Wong Kar Wai was, go- was, was going, but when you spy on someone, you don't necessarily everything. So do you think they actually got to have a relationship or got to sleep together and we just didn't see it? Do you think there's a possibility? Or to ask the question a different way, do you think there's any possibility that the child that uh, Maggie Chung has at the end of the film could be Tony Long's? I think that was when I first watched the film, that was my interpretation. That was part of why I was so crushed because it was kind of like, oh man, you missed out on oh, Maggie Chung and the child. Damn. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, I think it leaves it up to the audience. I know that like, um, I've, I've read something about deleted scenes, which confirms that they actually did get intimate, which kind of ruins that sort of ambiguity. I think it's better not knowing whether they consummated or not, whether that, you know they actually deliberately held themselves back which uh, makes it even more heartbreaking yeah I, I i honestly think it's not ambiguous enough because i take them uh, him having his own apartment and her going there every day for a while until she's caught up 
almost a confirmation that they did get intimate. We don't see yeah. it, of course, because, uh, like I said, if we if we stick with the metaphor of spying or of, of uh, what's another word for it, of uh, voyeurism, the voyeuristic nature of the film, we don't see everything. We only see a portion of it. Maybe we see the portion that is most public, if the, especially if the characters are doing a good job at hiding, which is what they try to do from the characters and also maybe from the audience. Uh, yeah. I again, I think maybe that's too much of a of a confirmation that they did. I don't know, sleep together or, or anything like that. But as far as the cameras is, they don't even kiss. I don't think there's any saying that the worst the the worst that we see is them holding hands in the taxi or her leaning her head. I think they hug. Okay, they hug at some point. Yeah, the and the film's constantly trying to wrong foot you because it'll start a scene where they're talking. Uh, about uh, they, they, it seems like they're confronting their partners, or they're talking about uh, consummating the affair, and it turns like they're just practicing. Yeah, they're rehearsing uh, the what they would do when yeah. they confronted their partners, which I think is brilliant. That's so. That's that's one thing that I always remember from this film. I said I don't remember a lot of it, but that's 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 the thing that a lot of people remember about this film. Yeah, you go into these scenes and it's like really sort of like scorched earth emotions and then it'll pull back and you realize, oh, they're just pretending that, oh man, they're still, they're still holding themselves back from, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, emotional conflict and possible catharsis and uh, happiness of uh, being together. It's that constant back and forth. And I think one thing that this film does in terms of sort of, I think it, it gives you a really... Uh, a really neat progression into their relationship and how they do fall in love because I think I don't see a lot of hints of them even being interested in each other before the infidelity, before they discover uh, their partner's infidelity. You see they pass each other in the hole but there's no hint. There's no there's no hidden look, there's no glance, there's nothing, there's no accidental touching. It's It's mostly just two neighbors who mostly don't care about each other and only when they are starting having marital problems that they begin to notice each other uh, more and more until they do fall in love. And, and I think this film does that, does that brilliantly more than any other love story, more better than uh, Decision to Leave, certainly, uh, which I think that the love stories between the two films are very readily comparable. Uh, but also, I, I like it better than in, um, in uh, Days of Being Wild. At least for... I never, in Days of Being like, Wild, I never liked... Leslie Chung's character, uh, he has he has a relationship with two women in the film before he goes to the Philippines. Uh, uh, one with Maggie Chung, and, th- and the Karina other. Lau. Yes, and I, I from the from a writing point of view, I never understand why Maggie Chung or Karina Lau like that character. Yeah, he's unpleasant. You just got a like raw charisma, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's it seems to me it just seems to me they like each other because it said so on the script. But on screen, the actors, it just, I was, I never bought uh, Maggie, Maggie Chung's love for Leslie Chung, Chung's character. So that, that's always bothered me about uh, Days of Being Wild, whereas here, you definitely, there, there's an unmistakable chemistry between the two characters that is just... Well, like you said, there's this fantastic progression where there's this kind of um, polite indifference to each other at the start, and then you know, sort of neighborly um, politeness... 
and they're, they're bottled in together in these tight spaces thanks to these like fantastic sets of uh, like stairways and corridors where their bodies have to pass by each other closely and uh at the same time as we watch these sequences of them passing by each other um the two uh, the storylines uh the two storylines for the two characters have them gradually realizing oh their partners are cheating on them by seeing um little things uh like uh, uh the husband's uh got a tie uh from uh someone that's similar to uh Chao Mawans, uh and uh his wife's got a handbag that's similar to the one that uh Su Li Zhen's husband brings back from Japan. And it's just like this accretion of details and then seeing these characters um gradually sort of um uh understand what's going on in their marriages and then gradually come together. It's a great progression. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think at the point where they're having that conversation at diner, they both know. They're just trying to figure out a way to see if the other person knows. Uh, yeah. I think that's what's happening in that scene. I don't think there's any mistake that they both know. Uh, they don't know that each other knows, perhaps, and they're trying to find out. But yeah, I think are it's Are we seeing the same thing here? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Am I crazy? Uh, exactly. Uh, what else I was going to say? Oh yeah, like the the people they work for, they work with their colleagues are also carrying out affairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when he says, says uh, "buy two bags," and her husband on the phone says, "Why? You know why?" or something like something along those lines. Yeah, she, uh, my boss uh, needs uh, a gift for his wife, his mistress, and uh, yes, Suli Zhen says at one point, "If you take notice of the uh, little things, uh, you know, you you can see more." Something like that. Yeah, and uh, okay, I remember what I was going to say is that what I love about Wong Kar Wai in general, why he's one of my favorite filmmakers, is that his films are all love stories, and they're generally. I mean, he has essentially the same story that he was he recycles over and over, and it's not. This is not a criticism. This is why he's so brilliant. Is it's unfulfilled love stories? That's his specialty. But they're never just love stories. They're sort of like metaphors for a lot of things for usually an existential search for meaning an existential search for happiness uh yeah. and i think it's safe to say that both characters are unhappy with what their life has turned out to be and there's this sort of like shared uh melancholy that they are able to experience through the revelations that their partners are cheating them but i don't think it's just about the partners cheating on them no, there's this great line where um, uh, Tony Lung's character says, uh, do you um, ever wonder what you would be if you hadn't got married? And Maggie Chung replies, I'd probably be happy. Yeah, and I think, I think we can, that, that's right. Yeah, and I think we can easily interpret that as I wouldn't have someone cheating on me, but I don't think that's what that line is meant to be. I think it's, it's, um, it's meant to be that I did get to do everything that I wanted in life for, for a lot of reasons, probably. Yeah. Yeah, the two go on, like, when you're single, you only have to worry about yourself, but when you're in a in a marriage, it's a lot more difficult. And we know they're in a conservative society because the landlady is essentially, like, she confronts Su Li Zhen and says, well, you, you should try keeping your husband at home. <laughs> yeah, which is, I, that, that always struck me, I guess I don't understand enough about culture, but it's none of her business, right? She even says I, you shouldn't go out that much. Like, of course, I don't think she, I don't know if at that point she suspects infidelity. Maybe she does. Maybe she's seen her hang out with Tony Long's character way too much. But I don't. She definitely she, doesn't say anything. She just, as far as she knows, she's just going to the cinema every night, which is fair. I mean, her husband is away. What's she supposed to do? Stay inside all day? 
I know that was such a breathtakingly rude thing to say, but you can see how an older person in a much more yeah. conservative society might say, this is my place to use my wisdom. Exactly. Let me tell yeah. you what to do. And I suppose she can always kick her out of her uh, the apartment she's renting her. So Maggie, Maggie Chunk has no, has no choice but to listen to her. And she does listen to her, of course. Yeah, it just adds to the sense that she's stuck in a suffocating atmosphere. Uh, to add to the point of sort of existential search, uh, there's also the her with not being married and be, living in a conservative society, but also Tony Long with his um, uh, his desire to be a writer, right? I mean, it's it's explored more in 2046 than in, in this one, but in this one as well, that he doesn't have, you know, he's stuck in a life where he doesn't feel like he can do it, that he has the talent or the time or the desire to do it. But of course, uh, meeting uh, Maggie Chung, Maggie Chung's character, he finally does, and he sort of is able to find meaning uh, in his life, if, even if just temporarily. Yeah. Do you think there is, and this is where I've never been able to quite interpret the film correctly or, or um, at all, because I've read a lot about this film and a lot of people focus on the love story, focus on sort of like the philosophical aspect. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people who've written about Wong Kar Wai's uh, use of time or clocks uses clocks in all these movies and there's essays about that if you search if you search on academic uh papers you'll find uh, people writing essays about what it means and why uh Wong Kar Wai uses so many clocks etc cetera, etc cetera. but i'm often wonder do you think there's any political statement that Wong Kar Wai is making in this film because we do have mentions and in the first film as well in days of being wild i don't think there's anything in 2046 but maybe there is and i'm forgetting but this mention of times of troubles that hong kong is going through is it like anti-colonial riots yeah um especially around um 1966 where people are actually fleeing hong kong um and also you have that sort of um new sequence at the end with charles de gaulle visiting cambodia and it's kind of like um related to the vietnam war yeah and it's kind of like western influence sort of slipping in these territories and like the past receding uh you like the characters are also like emigres from shanghai they've escaped the cultural revolution yeah uh landed in hong kong in a very unhappy situation and there's no security for them in hong kong itself there's no happiness for them and they're surrounded by shanghainese or shanghai culture songs from um um, say a Mandarin songs that are played on the radio, um, and then you've got like Western influence through Latin songs and um, Nat King Cole as well. So it's this constant tension being in a territory with Western influence and Chinese influence, and there's a, a sense that Chinese influence is growing, and they can't quite slip away from it because it dictates the culture that they exist in. Uh, presumably, just to add to what you said, I think presumably Tony Long's character goes to Singapore to report on the Vietnam War. Yeah, he does say he's in Cambodia reporting on the Vietnam War. Yeah, but uh, at first he goes scene. to Singapore, I think. It, yeah, uh, there's a deleted scene where he... Uh, uh, okay. Oh, have you not seen the deleted scene? No, I have not. I have not seen the deleted scenes. Well, there's one, um, essentially... Uh, Suli Zhen and um, uh, Tony Lung's character reunite in Cambodia and he says he's there to cover Vietnam. And uh, yeah, the, it's a good thing Wong Kar Wai deleted the scene because it radically alters like the story and how you interpret it. <laughs> radically alters her character, I should say. Radically alters her character and her uh, approach, her perspective on the story. 
I mean, one of uh, Wong Kar Wai's biggest influence is uh, the French New Wave, which is actually, ironically, is not very evident here. It's more evident in his earlier work, uh, not so so evident in uh, in The Mood for Love and later. Uh, but he loves the 60s because that's sort of like the era of the French New Wave very much. It's also like the era he grew up in, because this is he's writing about his parents' generation. And yeah. like his memories of Hong Kong of the 60s are like specifically that music and, you know, that sort of uh, ambiance which he put into In the Mood for Love. Yeah. And I was looking for, uh, just to digress a little bit more, I was looking for sort of similar interpretations for Decision to Live because it, it is about a Chinese immigrant. And I always ask myself the question, had just this been a Korean actress, would that change the film significantly? And I'm not, I'm not sure I have an answer for that. I think... I don't know what exactly Park Chang-wook is trying to do there. There's an interesting line on language and how it, trying to learn each other's language and maybe learning these things too late impacts the relationship. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but does it really? I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot made out of her being, being not Korean and only having a simple understanding of Korean, including a line of, uh, she speaks in a certain way because she watches a lot of period drama, dramas or whatever. But it also um, makes her position um, in Korean society very uh, inse- uh, very insecure because she is an immigrant. Yeah, uh, which is... Uh, why do you think... So going back to In the Moon for Love, why do you think she does not go with him in the beginning? Because she clearly, in the end... We don't we don't get any sense that she's still with her husband, right? Is that is there any ambiguity left about that? Well, that this is like in the deleted scene, the ambiguity is gone. Um, like it, in in the film, if you don't watch the deleted scene, there's ambiguity as to who the father of the child is, if she's a single mother or not. Um, uh, if Tony Leung could actually go back into her life and uh, and. Um, Oh, sorry. What was the original question? <laughs> no, the original question is like her husband. She's divorced her husband, right? I mean, that's that's certain. Or is there a, is there a question there? I think there's a question there because she doesn't confirm or deny anything. There's no. Yeah, um, she's asked. Isn't she asked about her husband? How he's doing? And she's like, Yeah, he's fine. Okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, you might be right about that. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Like I, that. There's that. Uh, the question about why does she not go with Tony Long? what he asks her uh he does she doesn't even answer the question i think it's understood that she cannot and he even says i know you're not going to leave your husband i kind of like uh she we see her running to the hotel room 2046 but she's too late to meet him to travel to singapore together with him and it's always playing on her mind and years later she travels to singapore but she thinks better of actually um rekindling anything so it's kind of like in the end she's given up any hope of embarking upon an affair and um she's just assumed uh like uh she, uh, she's done the morally right thing you could say and uh, yeah i mean that's how 2046 starts right they're in singapore and she rejects him or something like that yeah and i never i never knew if that was a a scene from in the a deleted scene from in the loop in the mood for love that they stuck in 2046 or was that filmed freshly for in 2046 uh, Maggie Chung doesn't appear in 2046, apart from a scene that was filmed for In the Mood for Love. Okay. Apparently. Um, so that's the initial scene, the, the beginning. Some of the footage, um, I think some of the footage 
from 2046 uh, comes from when they were shooting in the movie for love as well. Okay, so that, that makes sense. Uh, but then the other thing uh, related to this is when she comes back, right? And she, I don't think we ever get a confirmation of this, but she inquires about renting the hotel or the, the apartment complex, whatever that is. Yeah, and uh, the landlady says, well, I can give it to you at a discount. Yeah, and we assume that that means she she got it. But then when Tony Long comes back and he finds out whether oh, there's a woman with the son that manage it now, yeah, why does he not inquire about her? At least to say, hey, hello, what's up? How are you doing? Yeah, well, a uh, neighboring apartment, isn't it? Uh, maybe he's just like, he's just... In 2046, we know he's never gotten over her. Maybe he's trying to... Maybe he thinks he's lost her forever, and he doesn't think of popping his head in. Yeah, yeah, the I don't know. And saying hi. It, to me, that felt like that always felt a little bit forced. Like it seems to me that it, this must be a failed love story. So at all costs, we cannot let them meet again. But that's that's one of the things. Like uh, Wong Kar Wai has a line: um, "Love is all a matter of timing. It's no good meeting the right person too late or too soon." And it's kind of like timing for the two of them was just absolutely rotten. And in yeah, but he comes back though, right? <laughs> so I don't know. Anyway, uh, it, it seems to me that he could have at least said hi, be a good neighbor. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe he had bad memories. Of that landlady's like, I'm not going to bother her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mean, he is, I guess, of course, it would have made no sense to rehash the same love story in 2046, but I mean, he does end up living in Hong Kong. Presumably, she is there too, so. Yeah, possibly, possibly, or she could have moved to Japan or America. Like, we see uh, a lot of the characters are leaving Hong Kong but do you in get, both films. Do you get a sense that she asks to rent that to rent that from the old lady specifically to wait for Tony Long's character. I think it's left open to interpretation because it's never confirmed whether she does or yeah, not. Yeah, but I mean, you're right. It's never confirmed explicitly. But in my mind, I feel like there could be no other explanation as to why she, of all places, I mean, she's presumably wealthy or reasonably comfortable, but she specifically goes back and asks to rent that place. And then, of course, we get confirmation that she did indeed rent the place. And she's just managing it personally without her husband. So to me, it just seems to me that, yes, it's not explicitly confirmed, but it seems to me that there's little doubt that that's what she's doing. I, I think some of the um, intertitles, some of the on-screen text is like, um, indicates that the characters are lost in nostalgia uh, for the past. And um, looking, like their desire to um, uh, l- look at the past leads them to a very dark present, especially for Tony Leung's character. Like He can't get over um, what happened. And uh, he becomes a Lush Lothario. And I guess that's on Maggie Chung's part. That's partly it. It's nostalgia for what she had. That's why she went back. That's why you know, you revisit places from your childhood, your hometown, because it's kind of like you want to see if the feelings still exist. Yeah. I think one way to look at it is, you know, obviously, perhaps Tony Long did not want to break up that marriage. So like you said, they did. They both did the morally, quote-unquote, correct thing. It's possible, I think, one interpretation is that I think, I, I, this is not mine, I've read online, is that eventually he gets over her, and he, in what, what we see in 2046, is not necessarily uh, the remaining love for her, but it is the, the love for the memory of her. The whole memory, our memories are traces of tears. Yeah. Uh, uh, quote. So it's, it's maybe maybe the scene uh, where I forget if he goes to the hall in Cambodia after that or before that, 
Uh, it could be this, the, the the movie could be be non-linear at that point. So I don't think there's any telling. But it could be that when he visits the apartment and finds out that she's managing it, he's over her. Yeah, he's nostalgic for for the memory of his love for her. But as 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 a person, as a flesh and blood person, he's no longer in love with her. I th- if you watch that deleted scene. Yeah, the alternate ending is uh, Suli Zhen and uh, Tony Leung's character reunite, and um, she's definitely over the relationship. She's like, I'm with my husband, he's opening up um, businesses in Cambodia, and uh, yeah, and um, he's like, uh, do you have any memories of our time together? And she's like, uh, I've forgotten. And then like, she walks away, and the camera holds on Tony Leung's face, uh, you know, it's a tremble of the lips and like a shimmer of tears in his eyes, and you can see he's not over her. Whereas she's like put an end to the affair, and I've always felt like like the two aren't quite over each other. It's because Maggie Chung's crying at the end of in she's trying to contain herself, like she she's looking out the window. From the way you described it, it it sounds like in that deleted scene, Maggie Chung is being unnecessarily cruel. Yeah, it, that's that's the that's, that's the interpretation I got. Yeah, like she's it, it very... sounds to me that maybe Wonka Wai is taking out some personal issues on whoever might have dumped him in the past. Because <laughs> that, yeah, that seemed be... to me that I'm glad that got deleted. It could be. It just annihilates any ambiguity, and uh, it is a, quite a cruel sort of ending for Tony Leung's character. And it's but... also, I mean, a, a story like this has to end up on a level field. The one character cannot be morally or emotionally above the other they both have to be equal and in all one car wife stories in happy together chunking express um uh fallen angels all the, the character there's sort of like this mutual understanding that the relationship is doomed uh days for being wild maybe that's not quite the case i think days for being uh being wild also breaks that but in other films there's that sort of level playing field and in the mood for love in the as released version we also get that and i think ruining that would also ruin the i think the the relationship between the characters in the eyes of the audience it's the perfect ending because you can see like they've both got emotions they've both lost the nostalgia and just ends with like that uh all right so anything else about the movie that uh that we haven't talked about probably like the music which is quite famous Yumeji's theme yeah, although I must confess, I like the the soundtrack of Twenty Forty Six better. I think some of the songs may be recycled, or they're quite similar. But I think it's it's more varied. But yes, so the the two songs that are featured uh, frequently in the Midfall of so the one uh, I think uh, that is just uh, sound that is just orchestral, and there's that Spanish song, uh, the Nat King Cole song, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Yes, but in Spanish. Yeah. Because yes. he recorded songs in different languages. Yes, and you can tell that there's an American accent singing that song in Spanish, I think. Mm. At least it sounds like that to me. It could be, or it could be a cover, because maybe Wong Kar Wai couldn't afford the actual original Nat King Cole recording. Yeah, I expensive. think it's the, it sounds like Nat King Cole himself. Okay, okay, I'm not, I'm not familiar with what his voice is exactly, so. It sounds like him, and he did record songs in different languages. That's like part of why he was like internationally popular. Yeah, and I mean the soundtrack is nice, and it's very effectively used, almost always with slow motion. That specific, particular brand of Wong Kar Wai slow motion that I haven't seen anywhere else. Yeah, that he does. I think I think I listened to an interview, and he does it. He actually has the actors move slowly. It's not just slow motion. The actors also move, like control their movements. So there's that sort of like a very 
very idiosyncratic look to the final result. Yeah, he like uses undercranking and step motion uh, quite frequently in his collaborations with Christopher Doyle, and you see that in the slow motion shots here. Uh, but Yumeji's theme is this great waltz, um, but it has this very sad melody, violin melody to it, so you know it's not going to end very well, this dance the two characters are engaging upon. Yeah, I mean, the same thing with the waltz in Happy Together, right? Mm, yeah, what a tango's, a tango's, it's a tango, yeah. Yeah, but it has the same thing. It has like a a me- melancholic feel to it. Aren't all tangos meant to be sad? Something like that. I don't. I don't know all of them, but the one the one used there is. Hmm. But yeah, Yumeji's theme. Uh, uh, Sage and Suzuki, nineteen eighties, um, Taisho trilogy. I uh, if you haven't watched those three films, they're great. Uh, recommendation. Okay. Uh. Okay. So we did. When we did call the awards, when I did call the awards, we did, I mean, this, we did say that uh, this film competed uh, very often with uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And I'm pretty sure we discussed it in that episode this season, several episodes ago. Uh, of course, uh, as luck would have it, I don't remember what I said that same, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> my... It was the craziest thing, man. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure we both erred on the side of uh, In the Mood for Love, and I I still, hopefully I'm not contradicting myself with what I said in that episode, but I, I don't think so, because it seems to me crazy for uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon to beat In the Mood for Love. Like, uh, In the Mood for Love feels like a greater artistic achievement, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. And you said it also beat the Hong Kong Film Awards, right? Hong Kong Film Awards, it won Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Film Editing, Art Director, Costume and Makeup. Yeah, but uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon won Best Picture and Best Director. Mm. And Best Cinematography, which is crazy. I don't, I don't, I mean, uh, let, let, let's be clear, Crouching Tiger had some nice cinematography, but Christopher Doyle's work in this movie is just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, action choreography, yes, give that to Crouching Tiger, no problem. It could be a, a sort of political decision where you can't just have one film sweep up all the awards, so let's try and split it. Could be. Uh, do you think, not, not on the Hong Kong Film Awards part, but in the Oscars, do you think that they perhaps did not select uh, In the Mood for Love, I don't want to say for racist reasons, but maybe they said, okay, we have one East Asian film that's very popular and it's gonna, uh, it's gonna make a lot of noise this year. Let's not, let's not choose any other another one uh it could I, I, it could be uh the academy uh in times past has been conservative uh well you know that but they also have been political in the sense that we'll only choose one film of this region i mean that's been that's been a thing that has existed yeah it could be yeah because obviously i don't think the korean film that year was nothing nothing to drive home about the japanese was after the rain which I believe was a Kurosawa script, was the last Kurosawa script, a good movie, but I mean, I'm not, not surprised that they didn't give an automation. Um, and then what else? China, Breaking the Silence, never heard of it. And that's it. So, I mean, out of East Asia, Hong Kong, In the Mood for Love, was the only serious candidate, but he didn't even make the shortlist, which, you know, it could be maybe Wong Kar Wai did not deliver the final draft somehow. That could be a thing, but I think it was because okay, we have Ang Lee. That's enough. We're not gonna, uh, we're not gonna bring another East Asian film into the category. Yeah, maybe. 
Uh, okay, but I think I think we all agree. We both agree that in comparison, both in the uh, was Crouching Tiger at Cannes. I don't think it was at Cannes. Okay, yes, it was not. Uh, but uh, in all, in the Hong Kong Film Awards at the Oscars, I think it should have been in the mood for love. Should have been chosen over Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Even though I think what I said that episode was that was I was a little bit surprised at how much I enjoyed. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, upon a rewatch. I think it's definitely a fun film. Uh, and even though I was a little bit critical of In the Mood for Love, it's not my favorite Wong Kar Wai. It's not my favorite of the trilogy either, but it is nevertheless a, I, maybe perhaps a masterpiece. Who knows? It's a great artistic achievement. Yeah. yeah. And we did this before when we talked about Happy Together, r- r- ranking your um, Wong Kar Wai films, but perhaps that has changed. What are your top three Wong Kar Wai films? Oh, I, don't, I don't think it'll ever change. Um, Kang Express will always be number one. Um, Happy Together, number two. Um, either Days of Being Wild or Fallen Angels at number three. Uh, or maybe In the Mood for Love. Yeah, I mean, mine would be like like your original, which was uh, Kang Express, Fallen Angel, and Happy Together. I think the first time I might have thrown 2046 in there just because I... I really enjoy that film personally, even though I recognize it's by far not his best. But I think this time I'll just say that those three, he had an amazing run in the 90s. And those three are just, you cannot go wrong. Watching, you can even put them on back to back and they're not all very fun to watch, but they're just fantastic movies. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Uh, Okay. The final question that we always ask, do you think it deserves the awards and the recognition? Perhaps a mood question since we've kind of already hinted about this, but nevertheless, let's have it on record. Absolutely, yes. And I think um, award bodies that didn't give In the Mood for Love all the awards are probably um, looking back with some regret because it stood the test of time far more than a lot of other films. Absolutely. And I would repeat just exactly the same answer as you did. It absolutely deserves to. Um, Okay, so we ended our season with In the Mood for Love, and this was a season of big award winners, perhaps a, you know, a, a testament to the the overall sort of, like, quality of Asian cinema as recognized by major awards uh, throughout the world and in their respective region. Do you have any overall thoughts about uh, all the movies that we talked about this season? Any 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 closing thoughts about the uh, the season overall. This is impromptu. We do not prepare for this, but nevertheless, I will ask the question. Yeah, we've only talked about more contemporary films, um, but it's safe to say, like the '90s and the 2000s were an incredible couple of decades for Asian films, where you just saw this burst of creativity from uh, sort of terrible financial, shaky financial ground, um, like in Hong Kong with the Mission and In the Mood for Love. And uh, sort of um, capitalizing on uh, interest, uh, growing interest in Hong Kong films uh, from foreign distributors. Uh, you had like explosion of interest in Korean films as well. And uh, yeah, just every title we've covered has been high quality. And um, yeah, I, I wish we could have gone back to some of the older films. Uh, I know we had like um, Gate of Hell uh, lined uh, as a possible film to talk about. Uh, maybe we can do that in another season. Yeah, there, there'll be plenty of chance. I think overall, perhaps we haven't 
given all their films they're due in all all three seasons so far perhaps we can remedy that in our next season we have not we have not uh picked the theme yet for next season so we, we never do i mean we always do it like right before the season starts uh yeah we're like indiana jones making it up as we go along yeah which is the best way to do it but uh <laughs> well, we're like one car why making it up as we go along yes uh, but I think it is fair because you we want to cover all regions of Asia and not all regions of Asia have sort of like the same history of cinema before the 80s, let's say, or the same recognition, not history because they do have a history, but not the same worldwide recognition before the 80s. There's only a limited number of usually just Japan, basically. Yeah, we've managed to cover uh, Thailand for the first time uh, in the season. Iran, yeah. So there's like future seasons, there's always more avenues to go in. Absolutely. So what was your uh, favorite or most surprising, most pleasant surprise? And what was your maybe most disappointing uh, of the 13 films that we covered this year, this uh, season? Oh, definitely the most disappointing was The Assassin. And uh, Ho Xiao Xian is another director who kind of like uh, does endless... Um, reshoots of scenes to try and get the right atmosphere but uh like it was just like the story just didn't work however uh greatest surprise and probably one of my most favorite films of recent years was drive my car which is just really well put together film uh and i think that was the first one that we actually covered in the season and uh, yes yeah drive my car followed by parasite correct yeah and it was great to sort of go in depth with Burning as well, just to talk about uh, that film. It's always great to revisit Burning. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I definitely the um, uh, Drive My Car. Uh, like I said, it was a great film. I had some reservations about it, but definitely not, uh, not the most disappointing. I would say I would agree with you. The Assassin is probably the most disappointing. I don't think I any of the other films that we covered would even classify it as disappointing at, at all. Mm. Uh, I think I enjoyed all of them except the Assassin. I think I think perhaps the problem was that it was built a bit too much given the number, the massive number of accolades in the top 10 lists that it had gathered. Yeah. I did not, they did not think deserved most of it, if not any of it. Uh, but the, the surprise, uh, the most pleasant surprise would have to be between taste of cherry and the mission. It's two films that I had not seen, uh, and was very pleasantly surprised by both. I'm not going to pick one of those two, whatever, roll a die or something. But yeah, both films that I had not seen that I enjoyed massively. And of course, you know, like I said, I enjoyed, uh, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed uh, Crouching Tiger. Raise the Red Lantern was also a fairly enjoyable experience. Uh, I'm glad we did, did get to see Departures, which is, uh, I cannot see what other theme we would have talked we could have included departures in because it's not a film that it gets talked about very much anymore. Unless we have a season dedicated to um, death, maybe and, um, funerals, perhaps, perhaps. We uh, could uh, we... cover Juzo Itami's The Funeral. Yeah, I'm glad we talked about Twilight Samurai, Samurai and Burning. I think Burning was perhaps of all the films that we talked about. Burning was perhaps the most underrated. Hmm. Uh, Maybe today's film, I don't know, because I think in the mood for love, even though it got beaten in some awards, it's still very, very highly regarded. Uh, apart from in the mood for love, departures uh, probably racked up more um, awards. Uh, Parasite as well. 
Yeah, Departures great. And perhaps, perhaps in terms of the number of awards that it gathered, perhaps Departures was slightly overrated. I think maybe we landed on, but it still doesn't bother bother me because it's it's a nice film. I think uh, again, I don't think I would you'd lose any sleep over uh, how good it is, but it's it's a it's a pleasant little film. Yes, uh, well made, and you can see why people. Uh, identified with it yeah i think maybe we landed there were some other films that year like um uh or there maybe there wasn't in 2008 uh i think the only uh, one i can think of is tokyo sonata which I, I would rank higher but it's also the kind of film that i can understand why it did not get as much attention as it should have was it still walking and all around us with two other films that yeah, were released yeah. at the time yeah but nothing from korea nothing from hong kong nothing from mainland china that i can think of that would pose serious competition in the at least in the asian circles yeah and uh, so departures kind of makes sense that year is being highly regarded yeah Any, anything else yeah there's a uh it helped reinvigorate my interest in johnny toe because that's a filmmaker whose uh career spans the decades and has helped define hong kong movies but um don't know uh and uh yeah he's got loads of films like election one and two uh to his name um ptu it would be great to dive back into some of his work and compare it to the mission yeah uh on on the other side of the equation i watch re-watching uncle bond me and the couple the couple the few other the couple of other ones that i rewatch did not instill in me any desire to revisit the <laughs> the, the filmography of uh apichat pong recetical I, I recognize his talent and his place, but my God, it's just not <laughs> not someone you can easily sit down and, and pay attention to for two plus hours. I don't know. He seems like quite an interesting guy. Uh, I'm sure Syndromes he is. in the Century. Syndromes in the Century. Try that. Uh, I, would, I would actually, I would maybe watch some of his museum pieces, some museum shorts and, and experiments that he does. Yeah. Uh, okay, and also, of course, in the middle of the season, we also had the New York Asian Film Festival break. Uh, and before the season, we had the uh, Osaka Asian Film Festival. And of course, those selections will probably be mentioned in the, our top tens, uh, because, or top five, depending on what we end up doing, because we'll, our rule is that we can only pick films that have been released this year in some format. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's only fair, right? You're right. I was trying to compile a top 10 list yes. yesterday. Of course, night. For, for your own personal <laughs> enjoyment, you can include anything you want in top list. But when we talk about it, some, sometime in January, probably, it has to okay. be uh, strictly a, a, a new movies that have been released in some format. Okay, um, can do. Uh, yeah, it's been um, great actually approaching the topic of award winners to see like the um world's uh changing perceptions and growing appreciation for asian films and also some 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 awards that would not necessarily follow good to be aware of them and maybe kind of bookmark them for future for future notice absolutely it's it's got it's going to be sort of a regular feature for episodes so yeah so we can understand the context these films are released in all right uh, so that was it for this episode on In the Mood for Love. And that was it for season three of um, of Heroic Purgatory and Asian Cinema podcast focused on award winners. Like I said, we don't know yet exactly what season four is going to be, but we're pretty sure it's going to be something exciting. 
until then, feel free to follow us on Twitter at Heroic Purgatory, all in one word, uh, or you can uh, check out our website, uh, heroicpurgatory.blogspot.com. Uh, no, heroicpurgatory.blogspot.com, sorry. Uh, where you can comment uh, or send us an email if you want to about any questions, comments, concerns, etc. Otherwise, we will see you next time. Siempre que te pregunto que cuando, como y donde tú siempre me respondes quizás, quizás, quizás Y así pasan los días y yo desesperado y tú Tú contestando, quizás, quizás, quizás. Estás perdiendo el tiempo pensando, pensando. Por lo que más tú quieras, hasta cuándo, hasta cuándo. Y así pasan los días. Desesperado Y tú Tú contestando Quizás 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 Así pasan los días y yo desesperado y tú, tú contestando, quizás, quizás, quizás. Estás perdiendo el tiempo pensando, pensando por lo que más tú quieras. Hasta cuando, hasta cuando. Y así pasan los días y yo desesperado y tú, tú contestando. Quizás, quizás, quizás. Quizás, quizás, quizás. Quizás, quizás. quizás.